Today's podcast is based on a live course presented at AUA 2018, Contemporary Pharmacotherapy for OAB. Support for this activity is provided by Estellus. CME is available for this podcast at university.auanet.org. Thank you. Hi, this is Dr. Vic Nitti, Chair of Education for the American Neurological Association, and I'd like to welcome you to another AUA Office of Education podcast. This is a very special podcast as it comes from AUA 2018 in San Francisco, California. Our topic today is contemporary pharmacotherapy for overactive bladder. We're excited to give this podcast as we're right uh, on the heels of a um, instructional course given on this very same topic. And I am uh, honored and very grateful that we have two faculty members from that course with us today to be the co-hosts of this podcast. I would like to introduce Dr. Eric Rovner, uh, professor of urology from the uh, Medical University of South Carolina, and Dr. Alan Wien, professor of urology from the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, gentlemen, welcome to this podcast. Thank you, Victor. Thanks. Well, we all know that overactive bladder is a, uh, is a common problem, and I thought we'd start, Eric, by you just sort of going over um, the condition and some of the challenges that we have in treating it, and then we can get right into some of our pharmacotherapies um, that, uh, that we use to, uh, to attack overactive bladder. Sure, Victor, and let me say that uh, it's really an honor to be, uh, to be asked to uh, participate uh, in this podcast uh, with you and, uh, and Alan Wayne. But uh, to get to back to overactive bladder, overactive bladder, as you know, is a condition, a syndrome of uh, urinary urgency, uh, frequency, uh, with or without incontinence. And, and the key is uh, when we look at overactive bladder and patients with overactive bladder, uh, it, it's important to recognize that the condition, uh, the syndrome, if you will, uh, uh, exists uh, in the absence of a, uh, a well-defined uh, condition that could cause these very same symptoms. So, uh, for example, if a patient has these uh, symptoms, urgency, frequency, but has a urinary tract infection, that's really not uh, overactive bladder. Uh, that's a that's a urinary tract infection. So. One of the first challenges uh, in overactive bladder is to exclude uh, confounding conditions uh, that give a very similar uh, symptom uh, complex uh, uh, when, when one uh, goes through the uh, diagnostic algorithm. And, and the diagnostic algorithm, again, uh, for overactive bladder really hasn't changed uh, over uh, the last uh, 20 years or so. Uh, a suitable history consistent with the uh, diagnosis and a and a physical exam, including a, a pelvic exam and, uh, 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 and a urine analysis uh, uh, is, is really what one needs uh, to make a diagnosis of overactive bladder, again, excluding uh, those other things that can cause uh, similar symptoms. Um, the uh, AUA guidelines uh, were published uh, two or three years ago on overactive bladder and the, the initial treatment for overactive bladder uh, remains, or I should say first-line therapy, really does remain, uh, according to the guidelines of both the AUA and the EAU, the European Association of Urology, first-line treatment really consists of uh, behavioral measures 
uh, uh, that is uh, things like uh, bladder training and, and, and fluid management and, and pelvic floor muscle training and various strategies to control uh, uh, the symptoms of overactive bladder. Uh, and if, and if uh, these are unsuccessful or uh, inadequate uh, uh, from the perspective of the uh, patient, then we move on to second line therapies, which is really the topic that we're, we're going to talk about today, uh, uh, which is uh, pharmacotherapy. And of course, pharmacotherapy uh, should be combined with the behavioral measures at all times. That is, uh, patients sometimes, uh, individuals that we treat with overactive bladder, sometimes lose sight of the fact that uh, those behavioral measures uh, are integral uh, to the treatment of the condition, and uh, they uh, need to continue on these behavioral measures uh, even when we add pharmacologic uh, therapy. And then those who fail ph pharmacological therapy, there's, uh, again, according to the AUA uh, guidelines, uh, there's uh, uh, what we would term uh, third-line therapies such as uh, Botox and, and uh, sacral neuromodulation, which are uh, not the topic for today's discussion, uh, but our additional treatments uh, that uh, and NPTNS uh, posterior tibial nerve uh, stimulation, which are uh, therapies for those patients who don't do well with uh, drug therapy. So when we have a patient who, uh, let's say, has gone through the behavioral uh, cycle of things and is still unhappy with the symptoms that they have. Um, as you start to talk about pharmacologic therapy and the possibility of, of a patient going on to pharmacologic therapy, how do you set expectations with patients? Eric, I'll ask you first, and then um, Alan can fill in some thoughts uh, uh, in addition. Yeah, so, so expectations are uh, incredibly important in this uh, condition. Uh, overactive bladder is uh, not a life-threatening uh, problem. Uh, we can't uh, tell uh, the patient in all honesty that they're going to do poorly if they don't uh, 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 subscribe to our treatments. Uh, by the same token, uh, they uh, need to be educated in that the therapies that we have to offer, uh, including behavioral therapy and drug therapy, uh, they don't cure a lot of people. Uh, they cure a small number of people, but uh, in essence, what we're looking for is is improvement uh, uh, in their urinary symptoms and in their quality of life. Patients uh, individually uh, have really variable responses to the treatments uh, that we give. Some patients do quite well uh, uh, with, uh, with the uh, behavioral therapies and drug therapies and in that they get a, a resolution of their lower urinary tract symptoms. And I, would, I guess I would consider that a cure uh, uh, but um, it's important to remember that there's even those patients who do extraordinarily well uh, with our therapies, uh, that uh, uh, there are lots of uh, other comorbidities uh, that can contribute to uh, lower urinary tract symptoms. And as patients age uh, and get other medical conditions, uh, their lower urinary tract symptoms can, uh, can change as well. I, I frequently tell my patients that, uh, that the uh, lower urinary tract is not like cheese and fine wine. Uh, it does not get better with age. Uh, it either stays the same or gets worse, uh, and, and, and they need to understand that. But the, the take-home point from expectations is really that uh, the responses are variable, and what we, what, what we generally shoot for are improvements in symptoms somewhere, uh, depending on the symptom uh, of uh, frequency improvements of uh, 15 or 20 percent, and, and uh, sometimes higher than that. And, and, uh, uh, incontinence uh, responses of uh, 50 or 60 percent, 
uh, improvement in their symptoms. Again, the uh, it's the unusual patient who has a, a complete response with complete resolution of their urgency uh, and, uh, and and frequency. I think that um, there's been some uh, some work done in in uh, looking at patients' primary symptom that they came in for and and having the practitioner address that primary symptom. That is to say, although overactive bladder uh, is urgency and frequency and, and incontinence and nocturia, uh, if we ask the patient actually uh, what their most bothersome uh, symptom is uh, and try to address that symptom uh, primarily, uh, both behaviorally and, and pharmacologically, uh, will often uh, be more successful uh, than if we try to uh, uh, treat all of their symptoms. Uh, what do I mean by that? I mean, say the patient with uh, primarily nocturia uh, without daytime frequency is a different patient uh, than the patient who has uh, urgency during the day, uh, but very few nocturnal symptoms. And, and we might choose to treat those patients uh, very differently uh, based on their primary bothersome uh, symptom. Uh, for example, the nocturia patient might best be treated with some fluid moderation and, and thigh-high stockings uh, and drugs directed specifically towards a nocturia, uh, whereas the patient who's most bothered by their daytime symptoms uh, might be uh, treated uh, with uh, uh, some oral pharmacotherapy directed towards urgency, uh, such as a beta-3 uh, agonist or an antimuscarinic. So again, asking the patient what their primary uh, bothersome symptom is, I think is a good place to start and then address uh, that symptom uh, aggressively. Alan, do you ever ask a patient up front, what do you want to be better? The answer is yes. I think it's important to make it clear to patients that basically there are two facts. One fact is that I need to know what bothers them the most. And the second fact is that behavioral modification and oral drug therapy is not going to relieve all the symptoms of their condition. In fact, it depends on what bothers them the most, I can give them a probability that that symptom is gonna be relieved and tell them what percent of that symptom is gonna be relieved. For instance, if they say, you know, what really bothers me is I can't make it to the bathroom, you know, I leak on the way to the bathroom. So in the urologist parlance, they have urgency urinary incontinence. You can pretty much tell them that these drugs are gonna reduce that by about 55, to 80% depending on them, depending on how, how they absorb the drug, how it's distributed, and basically depending on how well they pay attention to behavioral modification. You know, for urgency episodes, if they have, uh, you know, six urgency episodes a day, I mean, you can tell them that it's gonna decrease the urgency episodes by 30 to 50%, you know, and so on. But it makes a difference as to what they think their most pressing problem is, and it makes a difference that you establish the expectations up front because probably one of the reasons patients discontinue antimuscarinic therapy and beta-3 agonist therapy is because the expectations are unrealistically set. Okay, well, I know when, when I first started in urology, there was essentially one drug for uh, overactive bladder, one medication, and that was an antimuscarinic, and it was oxybutynin. Then it went to two antimuscarinics, oxybutynin and tolteridine, 
And now we have a host of anti-muscarinics as well as beta-3 agonists. So Eric, can you sort of tell us the difference between an anti-muscarinic and a beta-3 agonist? Yeah, that's a good question, Victor. And, and, and understanding a little bit of physiology is important uh, in, in differentiating between these two uh, pharmacologic compounds. And uh, I, I think you can draw some parallels, uh, uh, for example, to uh, the hypertension uh, marketplace uh, uh, pharmacologically, uh, where uh, there's a variety of different agents that work by a variety of different mechanisms. Uh, diuretics, calcium channel blockers, et cetera, uh, but ultimately treat the condition uh, that they are directed towards. So in, in the world of overactive bladder, we have two classes of medications currently that uh, treat the, the condition, the, uh, the symptom complex of overactive bladder, and they work by completely different uh, physiologic uh, mechanisms. So antimuspirinics, as you state, have been around uh, uh, oh, uh, 40 to 50 years now uh, the first one uh, uh, being oxybutynin, uh, uh, really used for urgency incontinence back in the early 1970s. Uh, but but uh, uh, the way that uh, the antimuscarinic uh, class of uh, agents was classically thought to work uh, was by uh, the an uh, competitively antagonizing acetylcholine uh, off the uh, receptor uh, uh, on the uh, postsynaptically. Now, what, what has uh, come of light uh, recently, and again, this is sort of an efferent effect uh, on the efferent side, on the, uh, on the bladder side, what's come uh, uh, over the last uh, uh, decade or so is some additional uh, work uh, suggesting that antimuscarinics uh, not only uh, block the effect of acetylcholine but, uh, on the efferent side, but may have some effect on the afferent side, that is the sensory side of the urinary tract. So, so the antimuscarinics may work uh, by a dual mechanism, uh, physiologically uh, uh, working uh, uh, by uh, uh, blocking uh, acetylcholine, but, uh, but, all, but uh, by doing so working both on a sensory side uh, and uh, on, on the, uh, on the uh, efferent uh, uh, side. Uh, the the beta-3 agonists are, are, are uh, 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 have very different pharmacologic effects. Uh, uh, beta-3 uh, receptors are a subtype of the uh, beta receptors uh, found in only a few spots in the, in the, in the human body, uh, one of which is in the uh, detrusor muscle. And when one uh, uh, stimulates uh, a, a beta-3 receptor uh, with a beta-3 agonist, uh, uh, such as uh, mirabegron, uh, the effect is uh, smooth muscle uh, relaxation. So it's a direct effect uh, of a pharmacologic agonist uh, creating smooth muscle relaxation, uh, uh, which uh, results in a reduction in uh, urgency uh, and uh, urinary frequency and uh, urgency incontinence. The, uh, there are some uh, 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 basic science work that suggests that perhaps beta-3s also work by uh, other mechanisms uh, through potassium channels uh, and uh, perhaps uh, uh, on the afferent side as well, uh, but it is felt that uh, currently, uh, as best as we can tell, beta-3s uh, work again as a, uh, a, a, a pharmacologic uh, agonist at the beta-3 receptor resulting uh, smooth muscle relaxation during the filling phase uh, of the micturition cycle, ultimately resulting in 
reduction of urgency and, and, and uh, frequency and uh, urgency incontinence. Well, you know, I know that certainly there are a number of anti-muscarinics and they come in both extended available is in an extended release formulation. Alan, other than convenience, uh, is there an advantage of an extended release anti-muscarinic over uh, an immediate release uh, anti-muscarinic or vice versa? I think that there's an advantage because obviously you can't dose escalate um, a drug with one dosage form. So I think that the number one, I think extended release over immediate release for most people is an advantage because most people don't have symptoms at just one time a day. I think the only time that an immediate release preparation has an advantage is if a patient can say, you know, it bothers me only in the morning or it bothers me only in the afternoon or, you know, it's really worse after dinner. But the immediate, the extended release preparations, you know, they work for 24 hours or almost 24 hours. So that's an advantage for most people. And I think the ones that you can use dose escalation in, that is not one dose fits all, but low dose, high dose are advantageous over the single dose drugs, because I think it's an advantage in some people to start them on the low dose and then escalate them to the high dose if the low dose doesn't work, because the low dose in every case is going to have fewer side effects than the high dose. And if you can get the same effect therapeutically without increasing the adverse events, that's obviously an advantage. So I like extended release drugs, except in very specific instances. And I like drugs that have more than one dosage form. Right. As I remember, if you give patients a choice to dose escalate, about 50% of them will. And what I always found interesting is that when you look at the side effect profile of patients who choose to dose escalate, their side effects are very similar to patients who choose not to dose escalate. So although we know more anti-muscarinic, generally more side effects in those patients who choose to take a higher dose, maybe because they weren't having side effects to begin with, their side effects are similar to those who take, uh, who choose not to dose escalate. Uh, so I always found that to be interesting. So speaking of side effects, Eric, how are we limited by anti-muscarinics because we know they have side effects? Um, why don't we just talk a little bit about those side effects? Yeah, so anti-muscarinics as a drug class uh, uh, are not uh, uh, specific for the uh, lower urinary tract. The, uh, the term uh, uroselectivity coined by uh, uh, Carl Eric Anderson uh, uh, suggesting that there are drugs that uh, maybe, or I should say that their drugs would be optimized if they were quote uroselective. Uh, uh, we don't anti-muscarinics specifically are not uroselective. Uh, the uh, the uh, pharmacologic effects are uh, systemic, and and where there are uh, uh, muscarinic uh, receptors. Uh, side effects uh, can occur. So my, uh, muscarinic receptors are located in a, a variety of different places in the in the human. Uh, most notably, uh, with respect to side effects of this class, uh, they are located uh, in salivary glands. So when we when we block uh, saliv uh, salivation, uh, 
the, uh, the net effect is a dry mouth. Uh, so that's a very common uh, side effect uh, of these agents occurring in 20 to 30 percent of, of individuals. Uh, also, uh, muscarinic receptors are found in, in the uh, colon. Uh, so uh, when we block uh, muscarinic receptors uh, uh, in the colon, uh, we uh, have a net effect of constipation. And then there's a variety of other uh, effects uh, uh, in the elderly and in, uh, especially in the elderly, I should say, these agents can cause uh, some cognitive dysfunction, presumably due to uh, blockade of uh, muscarinic receptors uh, in the central nervous system. Um, and uh, uh, in, in other places uh, in the human body, uh, uh, to a varying degree, one can get lesser uh, uh, side effects uh, 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 anti-muscarinic uh, block. The, ma the majority ones, oh, I'm sorry, and then uh, really the, the ones of note that are uh, of, of considerable importance from a safety perspective uh, would be uh, those with uh, uh, glaucoma uh, or gastric emptying problems uh, as a blockade of these types of receptors uh, can result in significant uh, safety issues, uh, exacerbation of uh, glaucoma uh, or exacerbation of uh, gastric emptying uh, issues. Uh, so, so uh, by, by and large, uh, they are safe medications, uh, but again, uh, uh, these are not uroselective uh, medications uh, uh, and, and can have collateral effects in a variety of places in the body, specifically dry mouth and, and constipation. You know, Alan, much has been uh, said in the last few years about uh, cumulative effects of antimuscarinics, and, and I don't just mean antimuscarinics used to treat overactive bladder, but uh, anti muscarinic or anticholinergic drugs used to treat other conditions and sort of a perhaps a cumulative effect on uh, cognition and uh, perhaps too much anti-muscarinic is not a good thing when it comes to cognition. What do you make of those studies? How concerned should practitioners and prescribers be about that? Well, I think that they should be aware of what's in the literature. And what's in the literature sort of came to uh, sort of came to a head when an article was published in JAMA Neurology that basically said that the use of anticholinergic medication was associated with increased brain atrophy, brain dysfunction, and clinical decline. And what they were referring to was a concept called anticholinergic load, which means it's not just one medication, it's the combination anticholinergic effect of a number of medications. And it's surprising how many medications have anticholinergic side effects or anticholinergic properties. Uh, a lot of the antidepressants do, you know, many of the medications that we use. Now, there's a lot of disagreement about how much the medications that we use, the anti-muscarinics for lower urinary tract dysfunction, can really contribute to brain atrophy and dysfunction. In fact, the only one that's ever been associated with acute or subacute cognitive issues is immediate release oxybutynin. And in the European Association of Urology, you know, guidelines, they give that a level of evidence too which is somewhat inconsistent, but still pretty high. So I think that when you prescribe an antimuscarinic to an elderly patient, that you have to be, you have to be quite careful 
at least, and not prescribe oxybutynin because that's the one that's been associated with cognitive issues on an acute or subacute basis. You know, the problem with the studies that we look at in our literature is that they're short-term studies. So they don't look at someone who's been on an antimuscarinic for quite a long time. You know, they look at it maybe for three months, maybe for six months, you know, that's about really all. And I think that that's certainly not enough to look at any sort of cumulative effect that an antimuscarinic might have on cognitive function. So it's something to keep in mind. I mean, I think that that's one of the advantages of beta-3 agonist is that at least up to now that there really hasn't been anything reported in terms of cognitive dysfunction with Mirabegron. In fact, in the EAU guidelines, which they revise every year, uh, they say flat out that Mirabegron has been shown to be efficacious and safe in elderly patients. Um, and they say again that in older people, the cognitive impact of drugs which have anticholinergic effects is cumulative and increases with the length of exposure. And they come flat out and say oxybutynin may worsen cognitive function in elderly, elderly patients. Uh, and they say that in short-term studies, and short-term means what I said, three months, six months, solifenacin, darifenacin, fesoteridine, and trospium have been shown not to cause cognitive dysfunction in elderly patients. Right, and, and I really think that's an important point, and I know that um, I try to stay away from oxybutynin as much as possible, particularly uh, in, the, uh, in the older patients. Uh, Eric, I've, my impression has been that beta-3 agonists um, are very well. What, if anything, should, uh, should prescribers be concerned about? Um, well, as, as you say, the beta-3 agonists have a, a, a extraordinarily uh, uh, well-documented uh, uh, and, uh, and are well-tolerated uh, in terms of safety and, and um, uh, lack of uh, demonstrable uh, adverse effects uh, over placebo in virtually all of their clinical studies. Uh, they do, uh, they seem to be uh, well tolerated, uh, at least as compared to, to uh, uh, the antimuscarinics with respect to things like dry mouth and constipation with, with, with uh, the fact that these medications, the beta-3s, would not be expected to have these side effects uh, given their pharmacologic effects is actually borne out in the clinical trials and that the incidence of, of a dry mouth and constipation uh, with the beta-3 agonists are uh, similar to placebo uh, overall across uh, the trials. So the, the typical uh, uh, side effects that we've seen with this class of medications uh, specifically the antimuscarinics over the last uh, few decades are really uh, not seen with the beta-3s. Now, there are perhaps some theoretical safety issues uh, with the beta-3s with respect to blood pressure. When one goes through the uh, data in the, uh, in the uh, phase three trials and 
uh, to some degree the phase two trials. There is a little hint uh, that uh, uh, a small change in pulse of a beat or two and a few uh, millimeters of mercury increase in the blood pressure, uh, that's not universally seen, uh, but it, there is a hint. Uh, so in those patients with pre-existing uh, uh, cardiac disease, uh, hypertension, uh, uh, arrhythmias, uh, one needs to be cognizant of that uh, when uh, when using this class of agents. In addition, uh, the, uh, the metabolic uh, pathways uh, uh, with respect to uh, uh, the metabolic breakdown and processing of these drugs, there are a couple of uh, drugs that uh, have similar uh, pathways. Uh, and, and these days, uh, that's easily identified uh, in electronic medical records as we have prescribed these agents, uh, uh, the uh, the drugs that potentially could have a drug-drug interaction, which again are few with beta-3s, but some exist, uh, are easily identified. Those are the, probably the biggest safety issues with the, the beta-3s. With Mirabegron, which is the only FDA-approved uh, beta-3 agonist for the treatment of overactive bladder, when, this, when the early and the phase three studies were done, there was extensive attention paid to effects on the cardiovascular system because this was a new target, a beta receptor. And would there be major effects uh, on the cardiovascular system? And would these drugs, in particular Mirabegron, be cardiovascular safe? And I think that we can safely conclude from all of the data that we have, and it's a lot that these uh, that Mirabegron is cardiovascular safe. And I would suspect other beta-3 agonists that we may see in the future uh, may be as well. Yeah, Victor, I think that, you know, the the regulators, when they considered hypertension in the Mirabegron trials, it was a pretty liberal definition, as Eric said, for hypertension. But even with that liberal definition in the data that was submitted to the FDA, the incidence of hypertension with placebo was 7.6%. With Mirabegron 25, it was 11.3, so 4% difference. And with Mirabegron 50, it was 7.5%, the same as placebo. So it sort of gives you an idea that, hey, this is not, this really hasn't had much of an effect. And Likewise, the definition of tachycardia was pretty liberal as well, but even with that liberal definition, the stuff that was submitted to the FDA, the incidence of tachycardia with placebo was 0.6%. With Mirabegron 25, it was 1.6%, and with Mirabegron 50, it was 1.2%. So not much of an effect, I think, to be concerned with you know, clinically, keep it in mind, especially in somebody that has pre-existent hypertension, but it's not as though it has the side effect burden that the antimuscarinics do. And I think that's probably a reason why a lot of people prescribe a beta-3. And as you said, there'll be more beta-3s coming out in the future. And I think there'll be a big push actually to prescribe beta-3s first. Um, and if you're going to add something for combination therapy, then add an anti-muscarinic to it rather than vice versa. Eric, from uh, I, I know that we don't have a lot of direct comparator studies, 
but from your knowledge of the literature and from your own clinical experience, how do you think beta-3 agonists and anti-muscarinics compare with respect to efficacy? Yeah, so as you say, there's, there's very little head-to-head -head, uh, data. Uh, there, are, there are several uh, trials that, uh, that had uh, separate arms of anti-muscarinics and, and beta-3s. Uh, whether or not uh, we would all agree that that was the uh, proper dosing and and uh, of both agents uh, for these trials is uh, is debatable. Uh, nevertheless, it would appear from the best of the data that we can or, or the best information that we can cull uh, from the existing data is that the efficacy uh, with respect to each of the uh, overactive uh, bladder uh, outcome measures, uh, if you will, uh, such as uh, urgency episodes, uh, urgency incontinence episodes, uh, urinary frequency, uh, volume voided, that the two uh, agents uh, are very similar uh, in their outcomes. That is to say, there's uh, not a real uh, winner between the two of them in terms of efficacy with any given uh, overactive bladder uh, outcome parameter. They both seem to work uh, within very uh, narrow uh, parameters between the two of them, which is to say they're both rather efficacious uh, in the treatment of overactive bladder. And even when we look at um, uh, patient-reported outcome measures, uh, health-related quality of life uh, for each of these agents, it turns out that they are remarkably similar uh, in their efficacy. So I think uh, it's a it's a wash, uh, in my opinion, with respect to the efficacy side of the equation between these two classes of medications. So it seems that the real advantage then of the beta three agonists is uh, a side effect and safety advantage, uh, uh, certainly a side effect advantage and perhaps a safety advantage over anti-muscarinics. I would I would agree with that, Victor. Okay, so this leads me into my next thought, and I'm gonna I'm gonna turn to Alan on this one, and it's been my impression that. Yeah, some patients may respond preferentially to anti-muscarinics. Some may respond preferentially to beta-3 agonists. Some to either of the two. Uh, and then there are some that might require both or respond best to combination of beta-3 agonists and anti-muscarinics. Alan, is this a good idea in certain patients, and is it safe? Uh, good question. The idea of combination therapy has been proposed, especially recently, not just for combining two agents with a different mechanism of action, which makes sense. I mean, the anti-muscarinics and the beta-3s have distinctly different mechanisms of action, although they both act on the bladder. I mean, that, it's not as though you have one CNS agent, one bladder agent. They both act on the bladder. Um, people have proposed combining two different anti-muscarinics, although that doesn't make as much logical sense. But I think when Mirabegron was first brought out, and more recently, I think it's been shown that if you add an anti-muscarinic, or if, uh, if you add to an anti-muscarinic, a beta-3 agonist, that you will get a bigger bang for your buck. It's not synergistic, meaning that one plus one doesn't equal three. Um, and it may not even be additive, meaning one plus one equals two. But if you add the two, you will get a better effect than with either one alone. I mean, I think that that's 
that's been pretty well established. And in the case of Mirabegron, if you take its sister drug, its sister anti-muscarinic, which is solifenacin, if you take solifenacin 5 and you add Mirabegron to it, you will get an effect greater than solifenacin 5 that approximates solifenacin 10 without the additional side effects of solifenacin 10 over solifenacin 5. So I think the big advantage of combination therapy in that sense is that you get a bigger bang for your buck than the low dose of an escalatable anti-muscarinic drug by adding a beta-3 agonist without the additional adverse events you would get from the higher dose of that anti-muscarinic. And the one thing about the escalatable anti-muscarinics the tr that's true, because in some cases the higher dose doesn't seem to have that much of a therapeutic advantage in terms of efficacy over the lower dose. But one thing you can say is the higher dose always has a greater number of side effects associated. The same side effects, just increased percentage and increased severity. Now, a couple of weeks ago, the FDA did come out with a new approval for the combination of Mirabegron and Solifenacin. Is that correct? Correct. They did. That yeah. actually was just recently. I just got an email from, you know, one of the many places that send you emails um, about the approval. So we have, we, we've covered anti-muscarinics, we've covered beta-3 agonists, both very reasonable agents to use for the treatment of overactive bladder, some relative advantages and disadvantages of each, as well as with combination therapy. But now I wanna talk about what's coming in the future. We have definitely seen in the last two decades improvements in the treatment of overactive bladder uh, with the pharmacologic agents we have. Um, Alan, what's coming in the future? What can we expect to see? Well, as you know, as you'll recall, the, the, the title of my talk was on that subject was a tale of limited success, great expense and hope. And I think that that summarizes it. You know, theoretically, you can affect the micturition reflex at the level of the brain, the spinal cord, the ganglia the afferent and efferent nerves, the interstitium, and the detrusor smooth muscle. And right now, we can affect it by agents that act on the detrusor smooth muscle, and that's it. So if you, if you look at what's coming in the future, if you look at anti-muscarinics, um, you know, there are a few drugs that are in development, um, some of which have the hypothesis that by being more selective for one muscarinic receptor than another, uh, you're going to get a better therapeutic effect. Um, let's just say that right now that that really hasn't panned out. And I'm not aware of any anti-muscarinic drug that's in trials that seems to have a better efficacy slash adverse event profile than the ones that are on the market. Now, the beta-3 agonists, there are beta-3 agonists that are in trial. Um, there was one called, um, well, there is one called Solibegron. Um, Solibegron is 
I think it's in basically phase three trials now. There's a two-dose variety a day, and there's a one-dose variety a day that has to be that has to be trialed. Um, the, you know, the question is, will it be better than mirabegron? In the laboratory, um, it seems to be as or more effective, but there's a big jump between the laboratory and clinical use. Um, there was another drug called ritabegron that seemed to be more selective for bladder than the other organs in which the beta-3 receptor existed. Um, but it failed in phase three trials. It, uh, the primary efficacy measure was not met. There's another drug called Vibegron that's in development that is a thousand times more selective um, for the beta-3 receptors. It's, uh, it's been trialed overseas. There was a, there's an article actually that's in press in European urology for two doses of the drug, 50 and 100 milligrams. It performed extremely well against placebo. And of course, the next thing will be they need another phase three trial, and then they can go for FDA approval. And then, you know, the question will be, well, you know, why should I use this rather than uh, Mirabegron? And of course, you know, perhaps a brave individual or company will uh, you know, do a head-to-head, -head, you know, study against the two. And I mean, my, you know, whenever I talk about head-to-head -head studies, there's no, I think, drug company that really likes to do a head-to-head -head study against another agent unless they're sure they can beat them. So I think the fairest way to compare one drug to another is look at the data they submitted to the FDA that's in their product insert. I mean, that's an easy way to establish some sort of a baseline and compare the two drugs. You know, for instance, if, if you look at the data submitted on antimuscarinic solifenacin and beta-3 agonist mirabegron that was submitted to the AUA, you might be surprised by the difference in the efficacy between the two agents, because in the stuff that was submitted to the FDA, there definitely is um, you know, a difference. You know, the, the phosphodiesterase inhibitors, you know, have been approved for male lower urinary tract symptoms. There's only one, uh, tilatophil, but there's no reason why the other phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors shouldn't have, you know, basically the same approval. It, if you look at possible new targets, the potassium channel openers, you know, it's a great theoretical idea. Wow, you cause hyperpolarization, you cause bladder smooth muscle relaxation. You know, the problem is, is Eric, one of the first statements he talked about was uroselectivity. They're not uroselective. Same thing with the calcium channel antagonists. They're not uroselective. So those are new targets, but there really hasn't been uh, much therapeutic success with uroselectivity with either one of those. Uh, the prostanoid receptor antagonists, promising animal results, uh, minimal clinical results, you know, with that. So it doesn't appear that we're going to really get very far with that. Vitamin D3 agonists uh, in the laboratory, somewhat successful, clinically minimal success. 
the neurokinin receptor antagonists initially um, with a drug that was tested called Arepitant, which is people use actually for chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. Um, it was thought to be a significant advance, reasonable results. The problem was that there were some difficulties with drug-drug interaction, so the company that developed it uh, brought out another um, NK1 antagonist, um, and unfortunately, it was no better than tolteridine at a clinical trial, so, so they dropped it. Um, there's some promising animal data with uh, gamma amino butyric acid agonists, since GABA is the chief inhibitory compound in the central nervous system. Uh, but again, this is way off from, you know, any clinical trials. There was a, a major, you know, major hope for purinergic receptor antagonists, specifically the P2X3 receptor. You know, there was an article that came out that was cited by everybody in 2011 that uh, basically the knockout mice for this particular receptor showed increased intercontraction intervals, reduced peak pressures, et cetera. It was thought to be, you know, the answer. Well, that was published in 2011, as far as I can tell. And, you know, I look at the literature a lot. Uh, there's been no further advancement of that, you know, clinically. Unfortunately, it just hasn't proven to be something that's useful. You know, the transient receptor potential antagonists, uh, their sensors to stretch and chem chemical irritation. Um, you know, again, in the laboratory, they've proved to be very useful, but clinically, the TRIP-V1 antagonists cause hyperthermia. There's the TRIP-M8 antagonist, um, hypothermia in animal models, some sort of perioral burning sensation when they were used clinically. So right now, you know, they haven't proved to be clinically very useful. The data that was thought to be initially promising just hasn't panned out. You know, cannabinoids, boy, everybody would be happy if the cannabinoids were shown to be very successful in treating overactive bladder. Um, you know, right now, they have been shown to be useful in neurogenic detrusor overactivity, especially in patients that have multiple sclerosis. I mean, I suspect that they will be, you know, tried in humans. The opioid receptors, the mu receptor agonists that modulate micturition, um, you know, those have been utilized. Uh, and there's one now, it's uh, called natalamide. It's an opioid ligand that's in trials. It's experimentally, it works great in the guinea pig, you know, whether that's going to come to fruition in the human um, is again, you know, it's another question. So I think that you could summarize what's out there now as, you know, the last slide in the session, you, you might remember, you concluded a tale of limited success, great expense, um, and hope. And I think that that, unfortunately, is the status with, you know, drugs for overactive bladder at the moment. 
All right. Well, what I'd like to do now is just kind of bring the discussion back to the patient. So Eric, you have started a patient on uh, some pharmacotherapy for overactive bladder. Uh, How do you follow those patients up? We know that if you look at some of the some of the data would say, boy, a lot of patients don't stay on drug for very long. What can we do to maximize the potential of the pharmacologic agents that we're using? Um, so the, uh, the, uh, the, the key, key again, uh, what we talked about uh, earlier about patient expectations uh, at the outset uh, to counsel our patients uh, regarding reasonable expectations of these agents uh, I think uh, that's key. I think uh, 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 counseling them regarding expected side effects, uh, especially with respect to the antimuscarinics, and treating these side effects before abandoning uh, drug therapy. Uh, uh, we talked about uh, dry mouth and constipation. Well, these are side effects uh, that, although bothersome, uh, can be treated uh, with uh, uh, other agents, oral sialagogues, for example, for dry mouth. Uh, and, and a variety of different treatments uh, for constipation, stool softeners, uh, uh, fluid management, et cetera, that uh, we should not uh, abandon uh, uh, effective drug therapy uh, based on side effects uh, if we can treat the side effects uh, adequately. Again, I would also like to point out uh, 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 that uh, patients uh, that we see, uh, although they have the syndrome of overactive bladder, uh, they really, most of the time, are bothered by one symptom or maybe two symptoms, and we need to concentrate and remind the patient uh, of those symptoms and, and, and specifically uh, ask them uh, whether that symptom, uh, which bothered them the most, uh, has been adequately addressed uh, by, the, uh, by the treatments that, uh, that, that we initiated, whether they be anti-muscarinics, beta-3s, or even, even behavioral uh, modifications. And again, I want to emphasize, uh, sort of bring the whole uh, discussion back to where we started. Behavior modifications are important. And uh, the patient who uh, had uh, uh, start, starts uh, drinking excessive amounts of fluid uh, is going to uh, nullify the effect of, of uh, the medications or the patient who was on a behavioral regimen uh, inclusive of uh, pelvic floor exercises, who, who stops their pelvic floor exercises. Uh, because they've gotten drug uh, or they had some modest effect uh, and they stopped their, uh, their, their behavioral modifications uh, is bound to fail. So, so we do need to see these patients uh, again and again. It's not to give them a drug and forget about them, but in fact, bring them back uh, and remind them of, of the importance of compliance with uh, these agents, remind them of their primary symptom, remind them of, of uh, treating uh, side effects. So uh, the first half of your question, I'll answer last, which was how do I follow these uh, individuals? And I'll, I'll prescribe my, uh, my therapy, uh, whether it be uh, behavioral modification uh, or behavioral modification and, and drug. And I'll see them back within, within two to four weeks, actually, and, and reassess things. And often I will do that with a diary, uh, avoiding diary, a frequency volume chart, if you will. Uh, and then we'll make some decisions uh, uh, sequentially uh, every two to four weeks uh, until we uh, optimize or, or maximize uh, their improvement. But would you say that it's it's important to have patient buy-in and have the patient engaged in the treatment of their overactive bladder? 
Oh, I, I think it's critically important that they understand uh, that there's a multiple contributing, often there's multiple contributing factors to their lower urinary tract symptoms, uh, some of which are controllable with a drug, but many of which uh, are, are modified or, or controlled by themselves and their own behavior. So there has to be buy-in uh, by, uh, by the patient uh, in, in this particular uh, a realm of medical care in order to maximize therapy. I think that's a, a, key, uh, a key point, uh, Victor, and, and I'm glad you brought it up. One last thing I want to bring up before we close out this podcast, and that is uh, the symptom of nocturia. It is a symptom that uh, is common in patients with overactive bladder, but we know that it can exist independent of overactive bladder for a variety of reasons. Uh, too much production of urine at night, nocturnal polyuria, uh, as well as uh, other reasons. Um, how do you attack nocturia behaviorally or pharmacologically? Alan, I'm going to ask you that question first. Well, I think specifically with reference to overactive bladder, I mean, you have to remember the definition of overactive bladder is the primary symptom is urgency. Urgency, um, you know, with or without urgency incontinence, usually with frequency in nocturia. But nocturia sort of comes in two forms. I mean, the primary cause of nocturia, I think, is nocturnal polyuria, which most people with nocturia have. So the primary problem is not really the bladder. Uh, the primary problem is really in the kidneys. So. I think that if someone has a problem of nocturia that is basically an isolated problem. In other words, if they have symptoms all day long um, and they get up at night as well, then, and what bothers them is really uh, everything. Symptoms all day long, getting up at night. I think that it's, it's not unreasonable as most people would do you know, to place them on one of the medications for overactive bladder. The problem is that virtually all the medications for overactive bladder really don't affect nocturia to any significant extent. And so basically to, to do that, I think that you need an agent that specifically attacks the nocturia, that is the production of, of urine at night. Um, <clears throat> And so I think when you, when you manage someone and if you treat them with their overactive bladder medication first, or in the case of men, you may treat them with the medication for uh, BPH first and their symptoms get better during the day, um, it's only in the case of patients that have really severe urgency at night, I think that the antimuscarinic or the beta-3 agonist is going to relieve that symptom of, of nocturia. And so in that case, I think you need a medicine that really acts at the, at the heart of the problem really, which is the, produ the producer of the nocturnal polyuria, the excess production of urine at night. Um, you know, and that's obviously an, an agent that's really gonna act on, on the kidneys basically to decrease urine production. Um, and so I think you really have to sort of turn, you know, to that 
that medication. Um, and I think that basically, you know, that's what's been done, you know, now. And, you know, that would be my choice. I don't think that the overactive bladder medications affect nocturia very much. Um, you know, in fact, I think if you look at them all, there's some statistical improvement without much clinical improvement in terms of nocturia. Um, and I think that you need to go with a medication that, you know, basically attacks it at the source, which is the production of urine, you know, basically by, by the kidneys. So a, a vasopressin analog or, or desmopressin, for example. Yeah, basically it's, uh, you know, there's, there's one that was approved in, in the United States, um, you know, just recently, or less recently, let's say within the last year. That's uh, the only drug that's approved for nocturia in the United States. And I think that, uh, that that basically is something that's reasonable to use in most people if in fact their symptoms are primarily at night or you've used your overactive bladder medications and that's, that's what remains. You know, the drug is, it's a drug called Noctiva. So it would seem reasonable to use uh, to use that in combination with overactive bladder meds if it hasn't gotten the relief of their nocturia but is satisfied with their daytime symptoms. Uh, yeah, I think that that would be very reasonable to use. Or in somebody whose main symptoms are at night, you right. might even use a just drug use like that. You know, just use it by itself. And, and see if it works and then clean up the daytime symptoms if they're still bothersome, um, you know, with the anti-muscarinic or beta-3 agonist. Um, so yeah, this might, I was going to say that might, we might consider that to be, you know, if it's a combination overactive bladder, nocturnal polyuria, and the patient also needs daytime symptom relief, sort of another form of combination therapy that can be used to treat the overactive bladder patient um, as well. Yeah, that's right. Because I think that the overactive bladder medications that we've been talking about are not very successful in treating nocturia. And if nocturia is a significantly bothersome part of their symptom complex, then I think you have to treat it where it originates. It's not commonly a bladder condition, it's commonly a kidney condition. Well, I think we've covered the spectrum of overactive bladder in this podcast, and uh, Drs. Rovner and Wien have really uh, summarized the essence of their uh, AUA instructional course on contemporary pharmacotherapy for overactive bladder. Um, I hope that you, the the audience has enjoyed this. I want to thank you all for listening. Uh, I especially want to thank my two co-hosts, Dr. Eric Rovner and Dr. Alan Wien for a, really a, a very informative session. I don't think that you will find two people who know more about overactive bladder and the pharmacologic treatment of overactive bladder uh, than the two co-hosts uh, that you've just heard. If anybody would like more information, you can uh, visit uh, our website uh, at uh, university.auanet.org. Um, again, I want to thank the audience uh, for listening. 
Um, and if you're interested in hearing any of our other podcasts, uh, they are certainly available. I would also like to acknowledge that this podcast was supported by an educational grant from Estellas.